Chapters twenty one and twenty two of I Will Repay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Orsi. Chapter twenty one. A Jacobin Orator. Denville alone had remained silent during Lenoir's impassioned speech. It seemed to be his turn now to become surly. He sat picking his teeth and staring moodily at the enthusiastic orator, who had so obviously diverted popular feeling in his own direction, and Tinville brooked popularity only for himself. "'It is easy to talk now, citizen. Uh, Lenoir, is that your name? Well, you are a comparative stranger here, citizen Lenoir, and have not yet proved to the Republic that you can do aught else but talk.' "'If somebody did not talk, citizen Tinville, is that your name?' rejoined Lenoir, with a sneer. "'If somebody didn't talk, nothing would get done. You all sit here and condemn the citizen deputy Merlin for being a fool. And I must say, I am with you there, but—' "'Pardi, tell us your butt, citizen,' said Tinville, for the coal-heaver had paused, as if trying to collect his thoughts. He had dragged a wine-barrel close to the trestle-table, and now set astride upon it, facing Tinville and the group of Jacobins. The flickering tallow candle behind him threw into bold silhouette his square, massive head, crowned with its Phrygian cap, and the great breadth of his shoulders, with the shabby knitted spencer and low, turned-down collar. He had long, thin hands which were covered with successive coats of coal dust, and with these he constantly made weird gestures, as if in the act of gripping some live thing by the throat. "'We all know that the deputy Deroulet is a traitor, eh?' he said, addressing the company in general. "'We do.' came the uniform assent from all those present. "'Then let us put to the vote. The eyes mean death, the nose freedom.' "'Aye, aye!' came from every horse, parched throat, and twelve gaunt hand were lifted up, demanding death for citizen deputy Deroulet. "'The eyes have it,' said Lenoir quietly. "'Now all we need to do is decide how best to carry out our purpose.' Merlin, very agreeably surprised to see public attention thus diverted from his own misdeeds, had gradually lost his surly attitude. He, too, dragged one of the wine-barrels, which did duty for chairs, close to the trestle-table, and thus the members of the nameless Jacobin Club made a compact group, picturesque in its weird horror, its uncompromising, flaunting ugliness. "'I suppose,' said Tinville, who was loth to give up his position as leader of these extremists, "'I suppose, citizen Lenoir, that you are in position to furnish me with proofs of the citizen deputy's guilt.' "'If I furnish you with such proof, Citizen Tinville,' retorted the other, "'will you, as public prosecutor, carry the indictment through?' "'It is my duty to publicly accuse those who are traitors to the Republic.' "'And you, Citizen Merlin,' queried Lenoir, "'will you help the Republic to the best of your ability to be rid of a traitor?' "'My services to the cause of our great revolution are too well known,' began Merlin. But Lenoir interrupted him with impatience. "'Pardi!' but we'll have no rhetoric now, citizen Merlin. We all know that you have blundered, and that the Republic cares little for those of the, her sons who have failed. But whilst you are still Minister of Justice, the people of France have need of you, for bringing other traitors to the guillotine. He spoke the last phrase slowly and significantly, lingering on the word other, as if he wished its a whole awesome meaning to penetrate well into Merlin's brain. What is your advice, then, citizen Lenoir? Apparently, by unanimous consent, the coal-heaver from some obscure province of France had been tacitly acknowledged the leader of the band. Merlin, still in terror for himself, looked to him for advice. Even Tinville was ready to be guided by him. All were at once in their desire to rid themselves of Deroulade, 
who by his clean living, his aloofness from their own hideous orgies and deadly hate, seemed a living reproach to them all, and they all felt that in Lenoir there must exist some secret dislike of the popular citizen deputy, which would give him a clear insight of how best to bring about his downfall. "'What is your advice?' had been Merlin's query, and everyone there listened eagerly for what was to come. "'We are all agreed,' commenced Lenoir quietly, "'that just at this moment it would be unwise to arraign the citizen deputy without material proof. The mob of Paris worship him.' and would turn against those who had tried to dethrone their idol. Now Citizen Merlin failed to furnish us with proofs of Desrolets' guilt. For the moment he is a free man, and I imagine a wise one. Within two days he will have quitted this country, well knowing that, if he stayed long enough to see his popularity wane, he would also outstay his welcome on earth altogether. Ay, ay, said some of the men approvingly, whilst others laughed hoarsely at the weird jest. I propose, therefore, continued Lenoir, after a slight pause, that it shall be Citizen Deputy Desrolets himself who shall furnish to the people of France proofs of his own treason against the Republic. But how? But how? Rapid, loud, and excited queries greeted this extraordinary suggestion from the provincial giant. By the simplest means imaginable, retorted Lenoir with imperturbable calm, isn't there a good proverb which our grandmothers used to quote, that if you only give a man a sufficient length of rope, he is sure to hang himself. We'll give our aristocratic citizen deputy plenty of rope, I'll warrant, if only our present minister of justice, he added, indicating Merlin, will help us in the little comedy which I propose that we should play. Yes, yes, go on, said Merlin excitedly. The woman who denounced Desrolets, that is our trump card, continued Lenoir, now waxing enthusiastic with his own scheme and his own eloquence. She denounced him. Ergo, he had been her lover, whom she wished to be rid of. Why? Not, as Citizen Merlin supposed, because he had discarded her. No, no, she had another lover, she has admitted that. She wished to be rid of Desrolets to make way for the other, because he was too persistent. Ergo, because he loved her. Well, and what does that prove? queried Tinville with dry sarcasm. It proves that Desrolets, being in love with the woman, would do much to save her from the guillotine. Of course. Pardi, let him try, say I, rejoined Lenoir placidly. Give him the rope with which to hang himself. What does he mean? asked one or two of the men, whose dull brains had not quite as yet grasped the full meaning of this monstrous scheme. You don't understand what I mean, citizens. You think I am mad, or drunk, or a traitor like Desrolets? <laughs> bien. Give me your attention five minutes longer, and you shall see. Let me suppose that we have reached the moment when the woman—what is her name? Oh, uh, yes, Juliette Marny—stands in the Hall of Justice on her trial before the Committee of Public Safety. Citizen Fouquois-Tinville, one of our greatest patriots, reads the indictment against her. Papers surreptitiously burnt. The torn, mysterious letter-case found in her room. If these are presumed, in the indictment, to be treasonable correspondence with the enemies of the Republic, condemnation follows at once, then the guillotine. There is no defense, no respite. The Minister of Justice, according to Article 9 of the law framed by himself, allows no advocate to those directly accused of treason. But, continued the giant with slow and calm impressiveness, in the case of ordinary civil indictments, offenses against public morality, or matters pertaining to the penal code, the Minister of Justice allows the accused to be publicly defended. Place Juliette Marny in the dock on a treasonable charge. 
she will be hustled out of the court in a few minutes amongst a batch of other traitors dragged back to her own prison and executed in the early dawn before Deroulade has had time to frame a plan for her safety or defence if then he tries to move heaven and earth to rescue the woman he loves the mob of paris may who knows take his part warmly they are mad where Deroulade is concerned and we all know that two devoted lovers have ere now found favour with the people of france a curious remnant of sentimentalism i suppose and the popular citizen deputy knows better than anyone else on earth how to play upon the sentimental feelings of the populace now in the case of a penal offence mark where the difference would be the woman juliette marny arraigned for wantonness for an offence against public morals the burnt correspondence admitted to be the letters of a lover her hatred for day relates suggesting the false denunciation then the minister of justice allows an advocate to defend her she has none in court but think you Deroulade would not step forward and bring all the fervour of his eloquence to bear in favour of his mistress can you hear his impassioned speech on her behalf i can the rope i tell you citizens with which he'll hang himself will he admit in open court that the burnt correspondence was another lover's letters no a thousand times no and in the face of his emphatic denial of the existence of another lover for juliette it will be for our clever public prosecutor to bring him down to an admission that the correspondence was his that it was treasonable that she burnt them to save him he paused exhausted at last mopping his forehead then drinking large gulps of brandy to ease his parched throat a veritable chorus of enthusiasm greeted the end of this long peroration the machiavellian scheme almost devilish in its cunning in its subtle knowledge of human nature and of the heartstrings of a noble organization like Deroulade's, commended itself to these patriots who were thirsting for the downfall of a superior enemy even tinville lost his attitude of dry sarcasm his thin cheeks were glowing with the lust of the fight already for the past few months the trials before the committee of public safety had been dull monotonous uninteresting charlotte corday had been a happy diversion but otherwise it had been the case of various deputies who had held views that had become too moderate or of the generals who had failed to subdue the towns or provinces of the south but now this trial on the morrow the excitement of it all the trap laid for Deroulade, the pleasure of seeing him take the first step towards his own downfall every one there was eager and enthusiastic for the fray lenoir having spoken at such length had now become silent but every one else talked and drank brandy and hugged his own hate and likely triumph for several hours far into the night the sitting was continued each one of the score of members had some comment to make on lenoir's speech some suggestion to offer Lenoir himself was the first to break up this weird gathering of human jackals, already exulting over their prey. He bade his companions a quiet good night, then passed out into the dark street. After he had gone, there were a few seconds of complete silence in the dark and sordid room, where men's ugliest passions were holding absolute sway. The giant's heavy footsteps echoed along the ill-paved street, and gradually died away in the distance. Then at last, Foucault Tenville, the public prosecutor, spoke. "'And who is that man?' he asked addressing the assembly of patriots most of them did not know a provincial from the north said one of the men at last he has been here several times before now last year he was a very constant attendant i believe he is a butcher by trade and i fancy he comes from calais he was originally brought here by citizen brigade who is good patriot enough one by one the members of this bond of fraternity began to file out of the cheval borgne they nodded curt good nights to each other and then went to their respective abodes which surely could not be dignified with the name of home. Tinville remained one of the last. 
he and merlin seemed suddenly to have buried the hatchet which a few hours ago had threatened to destroy one of the other of these wild and bosom friends two or three of the most ardent of these ardent extremists had gathered round the public prosecutor and merlin the framer of the law of the suspect what do you say citizens said tinville at last quietly that man lenoir me seems is too eloquent eh dangerous pronounced merlin whilst the others nodded approval but his scheme is good suggested one of the men and we'll avail ourselves of it assented tinville but afterwards he paused and once more everyone nodded approval yes he is too dangerous we'll leave him in peace to-morrow but afterwards with a gentle hand tinville caressed the tall double post which stood in the centre of the room and which was shaped like the guillotine an evil look was on his face the grin of a death-dealing monster savage and envious the others laughed in grim content merlin grunted a surly approval he had no cause to love the provincial coal-heaver who had raised a raucous voice to threaten him then nodding one to the other the last of the patriots satisfied with this night's work passed out into the night the watchman was making his rounds carrying his lantern and shouting his customary cry inhabitants of paris sleep quietly everything is in order everything is at peace chapter twenty two the close of day Deroulade had spent the whole of this same night in a wild impassioned search for juliette earlier in the day soon after Anmier's revelations he had sought out his english friend sir percy blakeney and talked over with him the final arrangements for the removal of madame Deroulade and Anmier from paris though he was a born idealist and a utopian while Deroulade had never for a moment had any illusions with regard to his own popularity he knew that any time and for any trivial cause the love which the mob bore him would readily turn to hate he had seen mirabeau's popularity wane lafayette's de moulins was it likely that he alone would survive the inevitable death of so ephemeral a thing therefore whilst he was in power whilst he was loved and trusted he had figuratively and actually put his house in order he had made full preparations for his own inevitable downfall or that probable flight from paris of those who were dependent upon him he had as far back as a year ago provided himself with the necessary passports and bespoken with his english friend certain measures for the safety of his mother and his crippled little relative now it was merely a question of putting those measures into execution within two hours of juliette marny's arrest madame de Roulade and Anmier had quitted the house in the rue ecole de Médicine. they had but little luggage with them and were ostensibly going into the country to visit a sick cousin the mother of the popular citizen deputy was free to travel unmolested the necessary passports which the safety of the republic demanded were all in perfect order and madame de Roulade and Anmier passed through the north gate of paris an hour before sunset on that twenty-fourth day of fructidor their large travelling chase took them some distance on the north road where they were to meet lord hastings and lord anthony dewhurst two of the scarlet pimpernel's most trusted lieutenants who were to escort them as far as the coast and thence see them safely aboard the english yacht on that score therefore Deroulade had no anxiety his chief duty was to his mother and to Anmier, and that was now fully discharged then there was old patronelle ever since the arrest of her young mistress the poor old soul had been in a state of mind bordering on frenzy and no amount of eloquence on Deroulade's part would persuade her to quit paris without juliette if my pet lamb is to die she said amidst heart-broken sobs then i have no cause to live let those devils take me along too if they want a useless old woman like me but if my darling is allowed to go free then what would become of her in this awful city without me she and i have never been separated she wouldn't know where to turn for her home and who would cook for her and iron out her kerchiefs i'd like to know 
Reason and common sense were, of course, powerless in face of this sublime and heroic childishness. No one had the heart to tell the woman that the murderous dog of the revolution seldom loosened its fangs, once they had closed upon a victim. All Deroulet could do was to convey Patronelle to the old abode, which Juliette had quitted in order to come to him, and which had never been formally given up. The worthy soul, calmed and refreshed, deluded herself into the idea that she was waiting for the return of her young mistress, and became quite cheerful at sight of the familiar room. Deroulet had provided her with money and necessaries. He had but few remaining hopes in his heart, but among them was the firmly implanted one that Patronelle was too insignificant to draw upon herself the terrible attention of the Committee of Public Safety. By the nightfall he had seen the good woman safely installed, then only did he feel free. At last he could devote himself to what seemed to him the one, the only aim of his life, to find Juliet. A dozen prisons in this vast Paris, over five thousand prisoners on that night, awaiting trial, condemnation, and death. Deroulet at first, strong in his own power, his personality, had thought that the task would be comparatively easy. At the Palais de Justice they would tell him nothing. The list of new arrests had not been handled in by the commandant of Paris, Citizen Santerre, who classified and docketed the miserable herd of aspirants for the next day's guillotine. The lists, moreover, would not be completed until the next day, when the trials of the new prisoners would already be imminent. The work of the Committee of Public Safety was done without much delay. Then began Deroulet's weary quest through those twelve prisons of Paris. From the temple to the conciergerie, from Palais Condé through the Luxembourg, he spent hours in the fruitless search. Everywhere the same shrug of the shoulders, the same indifferent reply to his eager query. Juliette Varney? Inconnu. Unknown. She had not yet been docketed, not yet classified. She was still one of that immense flock of cattle, sent in ever-increasing numbers to the slaughterhouse. Presently, tomorrow, after a trial which might last ten minutes, after a hasty condemnation and quick return to prison, she would be listed as one of the traitors, whom this great and beneficent republic sent daily to the guillotine. Vainly did Deroulet try to persuade, to entreat, to bribe. The sullen guardians of these twelve charnel houses knew nothing of individual prisoners. But the citizen deputy was allowed to look for himself. He was conducted to the great vaulted rooms of the temple, to the vast ballrooms of the Palais Condé, were herded the condemned and those still awaiting trial. He was allowed to witness there the grim farcical tragedies, with which the captives beguiled the few hours which separated them from death. Mock trials were acted there, Tinville was mimicked, then the Place de la Revolution, Samson the headman, and a couple of inverted chairs to represent the guillotine. Daughters of dukes and princes, descendants of ancient lineage, acted in these weird and ghastly comedies. The ladies, with hair bound high over their heads, would kneel before the inverted chairs and place the snow-white necks beneath this imaginary guillotine. Speeches were delivered to a mock populace, whilst a mock santerre ordered a mock roll of drums to drown the last flow of eloquence of the supposed victim. Oh, the horror of it all, the pity, pathos, and misery of this ghastly parody, in the very face of the sublimity of death. They were laid shuddered when first he beheld the scene, shuddered at the very thought of finding Juliet amongst these careless, laughing, thoughtless mimes. His own, his beautiful Juliet, with her proud face and majestic, queen-like gestures, it was a relief not to see her there. Juliette Marnie? Inconnue, was the final word he heard about her. No one told him that by Deputy Merlin's strictest orders she had been labelled dangerous, and placed in a remote wing of the Luxembourg Palace, together with a few who, unlike herself, were allowed to see no one, communicate with no one. Then, when the couvre-feu had sounded, 
when all public places were closed, when the night watchman had begun his rounds, Déroulède knew that his quest for that night must remain fruitless. But he could not rest. In and out the tortuous streets of Paris, he roamed during the better part of that night. He was now only awaiting the dawn to publicly demand the right to stand beside Juliette. A hopeless misery was in his heart, a longing for a cessation of life. Only one thing kept his brain active, his mind clear, the hope of saving Juliette. The dawn was breaking in the far east when, wandering along the banks of the river, he suddenly felt a touch on his arm. "'Come to my hovel,' said a pleasant, lazy voice close to his ear, whilst a kindly hand seemed to drag him away from the contemplation of the dark, silent river. "'In a dimmed, beastly place it is, too, but at least we can talk quietly there.' Déroulade, roused from his meditation, looked up to see his friend, Sir Percy Blakeney, standing close beside him. Tall, debonair, well-dressed, he seemed by his very presence to dissipate the morbid atmosphere which was beginning to weigh upon Déroulade's active mind. Déroulade followed him readily enough through the intricate mazes of old Paris, and down the Rue des Arts, until Sir Percy stopped outside a small hostelry, the door of which stood wide open. "'My host has nothing to lose from footpads and thieves,' explained the Englishman as he guided his friend through the narrow doorway, then up a flight of rickety stairs to a small room on the floor above. "'He leaves all doors open for anyone to walk in but law. The interior of the house looks so uninviting that no one is tempted to enter.' "'I wonder you care to stay here.' remarked Déroulède, with a momentary smile, as he contrasted in his mind the fastidious appearance of his friend with the dinginess and dirt of these surroundings. Sir Percy deposited his large person in the capacious depths of a creaky chair, stretched his long limbs out before him, and said quietly, "'I'm only staying in this dimmed hole until the moment when I can drag you out of this murderous city.' Déroulède shook his head. "'You'd best go back to England, then,' he said, "'for I'll never leave Paris now.' "'Not without Juliette Marty, shall we say?' rejoined Sir Percy placidly, and I fear me that she has placed herself beyond our reach, said Déroulède somberly. You know that she is in the Luxembourg prison, queried the Englishman suddenly. I guessed it, but could find no proof. And that she will be tried to-morrow. They never keep a prisoner pining too long, replied Déroulède bitterly. I guess that, too. What do you mean to do? Defend her with the last breath in my body. You still love her, then? asked Blakeney, with a smile. Still? The look? The accent, the agony of a hopeless passion conveyed in that one word, told Sir Percy Blakeney all that he wished to know. "'Yet she betrayed you,' he said tentatively, "'and to atone for that sin, an oath, mind you, friend, sworn to her father, she is all ready to give her life for me.' "'And are you prepared to forgive?' "'To understand is to forgive,' rejoined Déroulède simply, "'and I love her.' "'Your Madonna,' said Blakeney, with a gently ironical smile. "'No.' The woman I love, with her, all her weakness, her sins, the woman to gain whom I would give my soul, to save whom I will give my life. And she? She does not love me. Would she have betrayed me else? He sat beside the table and buried his head in his hands. Not even his dearest friend should see how much he had suffered, how deeply his love had been wounded. Sir Percy said nothing. A curious, pleasant smile lurked round the corners of his mobile mouth. Through his mind there flitted the vision of beautiful Marguerite, who had so much loved yet so deeply wronged him, and, looking at his friend, he thought that Déroulède, too, would soon learn all the contradictions which wage a constant war in the innermost recesses of a feminine heart. He made a movement as if he would say something more, something of grave import, then seemed to think better of it and shrugged his broad shoulders, as if to say, let time and chance take their course now. When Déroulède looked up again, Sir Percy was sitting placidly in the armchair, 
with an absolutely blank expression on his face. "'Now that you know how much I love her, my friend,' said Desrolets, as soon as he had mastered his emotions, "'will you look after her when they have condemned me, and save her for my sake?' A curious, enigmatic smile suddenly illumined Sir Percy's earnest countenance. "'Do you attribute supernatural powers to me, then, or to the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel?' "'To you, I think,' rejoined Desrolets seriously. Once more it seemed if Sir Percy were about to reveal something of great importance to his friend, then once more he checked himself. The Scarlet Pimpernel was, above all, far-seeing and practical, a man of action and not of impulse. The glowing eyes of his friend, his nervous, febrile movements, did not suggest that he was in a fit state to be entrusted with plans, the success of which hung on a mere thread. Therefore Sir Percy only smiled and said quietly, Well, I'll do my best. In chapters 21 and 22